Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So much news to get to on the Gegen Pod this week. Graham Arnold has a new contract. Socceroos icon Mark Schwarzer will break down what it means. We've got a special guest from Spanish football. Phil Kitramalides from La Liga TV joins former Matilda Amy Duggan and me, your host, Teo Pelizzeri, as we go through all things La Liga. So let's get into the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This is The Gagan Pod. We start The Gagan Pod with the Socceroos. Graham Arnold's contract extended through until the end of Australia's 2026 World Cup cycle, whenever that may be. Socceroos icon Mark Schwarzer joins us now on the Gegen Pod to talk about the Graham Arnold extension. Mark, let's start with the road ahead, the Asian Cup in 2024, and then qualifying for the 2026 Men's World Cup. What are your expectations now that Graham Arnold is back in the chair? Well, firstly, my expectations for the Socceroos in 2024 Asian Cup uh, is that I would expect them to go uh, very, very deep into the tournament. And if anything, they're certainly one of the favourites. Obviously, uh, you've got the likes of Japan, South Korea, um, who are sides that have time and time again proven to be very, very good competitors in the Asian Cup. Um, You've also got Qatar, who are the hosts and obviously didn't perform at all well at the World Cup, but they're going to be, I think, looking at the Asian Cup to try and make some amends. But I certainly look at the Socceroos now as certainly, again, one of the biggest teams in Asia and I believe we are in a really good position to to go and win the Asian Cup. Looking ahead after that then the World Cup in 2026 of course 48 teams now are going to be participating at the World Cup and I expect the Australian the Socceroos to qualify without having to go through any extra qualifying um, stages. I expect them to qualify directly. We know that it is getting more difficult um, every time. Other Asian nations are investing heavily in their, um, their their national teams, their programs, trying to compete. And now with 48 teams going to the World Cup, there's even, even an extra incentive for uh, nations to to invest, to make it to the World Cup, because the rewards obviously are very significant for any, any na- nation uh, once they do qualify. But I do, again, go back to Australia as one of the biggest teams in Asia, one of the biggest favourites to win the Asian Cup. I also see them as one of the big teams to go through and qualify um, reasonably comfortably for the World Cup um, in 2026. Mark, with regards to players and selections, do you see the end of the road coming for anyone sooner rather than later? Or will the loyalty be there for the stars that qualified us for and then performed at the 2022 World Cup? Is it possible now with a bit of long-term ability to plan, Graham Arnold might look to usher through some generational change and perhaps call time on some players in the Socceroos setup? You know, when you talk about players and when there's time, the right time to move players on, I, I think a lot of times it sorts itself out. Um, you know, I think a lot of times players, by virtue of their moves, what they do in their careers, their clubs, are they playing regularly? Are they still hitting those those high points? Are they still getting that regular game time? Um, are they delivering at that at a, at a high level? I think it'll show over the next 
year or two, the, the players that are slightly older, the players that maybe are looking to to uh, slow their career down a little bit, you can't afford to. If you want to be part of the national team and continue to play at the highest level and be part of this journey that these guys are going to go on again, you have to be playing at the highest possible level and delivering every week. And I think there's a natural process that will be undertaken. Of course, Arnie's going to have to make some decisions like he did prior to the World Cup. Um, whether or not you know um, he's going to make leave players in or take certain players or don't take certain players, and I think there are going to be those decisions along the way. I'm not going to point any names out at the moment because I think it's unfair to do so. But I think you know that's part of the job of the manager, and I'd like to see. Um, I'd like to think certainly, uh, you know, Asian Cup. Just because it's a brand new cycle, just because the Asian Cup is up next, doesn't mean I think you need to swap. You know, like, almost like get rid of any player that's over a certain age or you feel that maybe they're not going to be around for the next World Cup campaign, but they will be able for the Asian Cup. I, I think there needs to be stages looked at. I think the Asian Cup is high priority. Part of the process is also is building the team for the World Cup because the World Cup for me is 100% the top priority. There's no doubts about it whatsoever. However, I think there's a process. I think there's players that can go to the Asian Cup, have a really successful Asian Cup, can contribute immensely to the team, but not necessarily be involved at the World Cup once we qualify, because I'm obviously getting ahead of myself now that Australia's going to qualify. Um, so I, I think there's a process along the way that, that, that you can utilise every player for, for what they're worth and what they can bring still to the squad, whether it's for one year, two years, four-year cycle. I think it's important to find the balance and to monitor and to manage. Some players you need to manage almost year by year and or even even um, uh, you know uh, international break by international break. I, I think there's certainly a way to be able to do that. Now, Graham Arnold's stock in trade, at least when speaking publicly, is Aussie DNA. It's desire, it's the love of the team, it's the love of the shirt. Do you think that over the course of another World Cup qualifying cycle, this might fatigue with the football fans in Australia, but maybe not so much the broader public because it plays well to the casual audience. But do you think that the fan base are going to start to want more, uh, particularly with regards to the football and the tactics, rather than simply motivation when they hear from the national team manager? Yes, Arnie has focused a lot on on motivation and desire, um, and possibly from the outside what it looks like tactically, um, that has suffered a little bit. But I think looking at the World Cup and the performance of the national team, you can't go there to the World Cup and do what the Socceroos did against the likes of um, France. For half an hour, they were the better side, the Socceroos. Obviously, it's half an hour, but still it's France, one of the biggest and strongest nations on the planet, and and the Socceroos matched them for the first... Actually, were better than them in the first half an hour. Um, Yes, there were other flaws, and yes, tactically, we got undone a little bit. We were also a little bit raw. Some players were still coming back, and that was their first proper meaningful game for some time. Um, but I, I also think tactically throughout the rest of the tournament, they got it spot on. I, I think Graham Arnold actually surprised me. Um, I said it before, and this team surprised me. Everything about this team surprised me. Um, and I said it at the World Cup, and I'll say it again. It is the best team that we sent have ever sent to a World Cup. And the results don't lie. You don't go to a World Cup like Australia did, like the Socceroos did in Qatar, and win two games and keep two clean sheets and finish on equal uh, well, on, 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 on six points without having a team. And tactically, you have to get it right as well. And I, and I thought they did. They pretty much, Graham Arnold got nearly every tactical decision right and nearly every substitution right throughout the whole of the tournament. So 
that's the stepping stone. That's the benchmark for the Socceroos. And Graham Arnold obviously knows he needs to build upon that. He knows the challenges that it's going to be facing now after such an incredibly successful World Cup. How do you match that? How do you better that? That's his big challenge. And the only way he does that is he continues to progress. He continues to be tactically on point, and he has to be, because like I said, Asian teams are getting better. Qualifying is going to be still very, very difficult, but I still believe they'll qualify. Asian Cup before that, they've got to be tactically on top. For me now, the given is the motivation, the desire. That's that's a given. That 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 is there in this team, and that's been bred into this team. Now it's the tactical um, awareness, the technical, now it's the technical uh, edge that they have to develop and continue to develop. And they showed at the World Cup, they've got it in them, and the management, the staff have it in them. Now they have to continue to evolve it, and I think they will. Now, one thing Graham Arnold really hammered home in his press conference was facilities and government funding. He raised at least three times the absence of a centre of excellence, a home of football. At one point during the press conference, he spoke about funding for the Socceroos and for Australian national teams relative to club teams in NRL and AFL and how that is equated in facilities. Mark, is it too much of a distraction to have the national team coach acting as a lobbyist? I don't think anyone in football is going to complain about what Graham Arnold said. In fact, I think it's fantastic that he said it. But should that actually be the role of the national team coach? And is it too much of a distraction from the core responsibility of the job, which is the football? Look, Arnie is talking about uh, a home of football, centre of excellence, and rightly so. I, I, I also agree. I don't think a national team coach should be talking about it if that is already in place, but we don't have it. So he has to. He's the best place person to talk about it, as are the players, as are ex-players, um, as are anyone who's really interested and really wants the the national team to progress and football to become a real force within the country. We have an incredible platform. We just never really have utilised it and we've not taken advantage of it. And there's time now that we really need to continue to push for it. And he's absolutely 100% right. He needs to lobby, continue to put pressure on the federation, on state governments, federal governments, to demand, to request more funding. Um, and I think I've said it as well. Funding is the key. We need to be on a very, at the very bare minimum, on a par with the other codes. And we're not. We're miles behind in the funding from state and federal governments. And that is unacceptable. And I think we have to keep talking. We have to keep putting pressure on. We have to keep demanding. And I would love the national coach not to have to worry about that because we've already got this fantastic setup. But we don't have it. So he has to voice um, his concerns, his opinion, as do the rest of us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. We have former Matilda Amy Duggan in the pod this week, and we have a very special guest from La Liga TV. He should be no stranger to you if you have been watching La Liga on Optus Sport so far this season. Phil Kitromelides joins us. He is, of course, one of the anchors that hosts La Liga TV every weekend. Phil, it is great to have you on the Gegen Pod. 
Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here and speaking to hopefully a whole sort of new audience of, of La Liga lovers and watching our coverage on Optus. Well, I think that's certainly the case so far this season, wouldn't you say, Amy? I mean, we are loving having one of the second, you know, major leagues. We've had Premier League for a number of years on Optus Sport. Now we've got La Liga. The stable is building and it just fills out the weekend so nicely because if you're getting up on a Monday morning and sometimes even a Tuesday morning, there's always a Real Madrid or a Barcelona there to watch. Uh, the more football, the better, as I always say, Tara, and how awesome to have La Liga and everything that comes with it. Uh, the big stars on the pitch, that little bit of extra flair and, and passion that we don't normally see in the Premier League. And I'm loving learning all about La Liga and really sinking my teeth into this battle at the top. Well, that's probably a good place to start. The The title race could have taken a bit of a turn and become a three-team affair at the weekend, Phil, but Real Madrid drawing nil-nil with Real Sociedad. It leaves Barcelona five points clear. Just give us your big picture assessment of where the title race is at at the moment. Well, as you said, Barcelona leading Real Madrid. And traditionally, you know, you, if you don't know about Spanish football, you, you've heard of Barcelona and Real Madrid. They are two giants of, of world football and, and they tend to dominate domestically. Uh, last couple of seasons, we've had uh, Atletico Madrid try and pitch in. They were champions a couple of seasons ago. Uh, they were champions in 2014. But generally speaking, it's usually Barcelona and Real Madrid who are, who are fighting out for the title. Uh, Real Madrid won it last season as well as winning the Champions League. It was one of their best ever campaigns. But Barcelona have have hit back this season and at the current time of recording, they are five points clear of Real Madrid. I'm not really sure how because it's not like they've been playing exceptionally well, particularly not in the last few weeks. They've done a sort of impression of um, Arsenal under George Graham in the mid-1990s, winning every game 1-0. Three consecutive 1-0 wins, which, you know, Barca don't tend to do 1-0s. It's not really in their DNA. So to have three in a row, it's the first time in 43 years that's ever happened. Just to give you an idea of the kind of performances, uh, they've had Robert Lewandowski suspended for, for those games. So the goals haven't come as naturally, but they've got those results. And uh, I guess that's what champions do, right? They, they get results, they win matches, even when they're not necessarily at their best. And that's what Barcelona have been doing. And at this midway point of the season, we're officially at the midway point, they are what we call in Spain winter champions. So it doesn't mean anything. It just means they're top at the halfway point. Is this where we expected them to be, Phil? Because like you said, the, the 1-0 wins, they're sometimes scrappy. They're not playing the most beautiful football. Um, they've been through you know, a lot of media throughout the first half of the season and certainly mm-hmm. building into the season. What is it, uh, besides being a champion team, if we drill down into that a little bit deeper, what is it that's allowing them to scrape through with these wins when they shouldn't be winning? Uh, what we've been saying about Barcelona throughout the season is that they've been very strong in both areas. So they've got an unbelievably good goalkeeper in Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, who's back to his best. And they've got Robert Lewandowski, one of the best strikers in world football. So, you know, football is a complicated game. We go in depth on tactics and analysis. But if you've got a really good goalkeeper and a really good striker, chances are that you're going to have a good chance to uh, to win matches, which is essentially is what's been happening with Barcelona uh, this season. Obviously, that's an oversimplification. There are, there are nuances to this as well. Did we expect this? It's hard to know, really. We weren't entirely sure what to expect from Barcelona this season. There'd been quite a lot of upheaval over the summer. Uh, players uh, coming in and out, players trying to be pushed out of the door by the board to try and bring in some money, money being a uh, thing that the board very much need and the club are very much in desperate need of. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a tumultuous uh, summer and they need to do well on the pitch 
as an economic reality of the club. They have uh, mortgaged a lot of their future on this team doing well. So there's a huge amount of pressure on them. Whether we expected them to be five points clear or not at this stage of the season? Possibly not. Possibly not. And we didn't expect them to crash out of the Champions League. That was unexpected. But domestically, I think most people expected it to be relatively tight between them and Real Madrid. And, and, and it is still relatively tight because they're only two bad results away from being overtaken. So they're not exactly running away with it yet. The, you mentioned the um, financial situation. It seems as though during the January transfer window, at least, the headlines about that have eased off in world media. It might be a different situation in Spain. It might be getting talked about every day. But are we getting to a pressure point with this Europa League tie against Manchester United where Barcelona, not only do they need to win La Liga, do they need to win the Europa League as well in order to sort of make up for the financial shortfall of getting knocked out of the Champions League? And is there a pressure point on this just around the corner? Well, there is a lot of pressure on this uh, Barcelona team because just briefly for anybody who isn't entirely sure what, what we're talking about, they they did a lot of things in the summer. They sold off uh, their a big chunk of their TV rights money for the next 20 years to a private investment company. So they've got a lot of money now um, to, uh, to bring in players, but it means that they're going to have less money uh, every year for the next 20 years or so from from TV they sold off other parts of the of the of the club as well um, merchandising arms um, cre- content creation parts they sold a lot of things off to get money now to invest in the club now to try and get them back to the top now if you win the Europa League you get about 8 million euros that is nowhere near enough in terms of plugging any kinds of financial shortfall what is important for Barcelona is to get back to being yes successful on the pitch and that success will bring with it commercial deals uh, when Messi was there they had around 40 official sponsors and that number dropped to below 20 um in the last uh, couple of years since since he's left so commercially they've been uh, absolutely uh, decimated which is why they're in such a uh, terrible financial situation so yeah the Europa League would be a start but I mean winning that is not going to bring them enough money for them for their money woes to to um, to disappear what they need to do is consistently be successful it will bring prize money but it will also attract commercial uh, deals as well I'm just going to throw it right out there Phil I'm a Manchester United supporter so I'm kind of hoping they get knocked <laughs> out um, by men <laughs> in the coming weeks. I don't know that, as you said, that helps the club's financial state. You mentioned players obviously being you know, pushed out the door and the board having to make decisions for finances. Can we talk about Frankie de Jong? Because obviously um, this, this was personally a really tough battle for him um, when chat was that the club didn't want him, yet he's been able to retain his place in the first team. Is there any chat about him still leaving, uh, especially because we're still in a transfer window just? Or if, um, yeah, or, or, you know, come the end of the season? Or is he now a long-term Barcelona player? Will he stay there for life? Yeah, it was a really strange situation in the summer because there was a deal for him to go to Manchester United. The club were absolutely desperate for him to go to Manchester United. And he said, no. I am not going. I've got a contract here. I signed a contract, a very well-paid contract. I want to stay here. I like it here. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, so it was a curious situation, um, but good on him, uh, I guess. And, and not only that, but good on him for also forcing his way into this uh, Barcelona starting eleven because it's not easy to get into a team with Sergio Busquets, Pedri and Gavi ahead of you. Uh, but he's done that. They now tend to be playing four midfielders uh, with uh, either Pedri or Gavi playing a little bit further forward in the front three. 
And Frankie de Jong is very much uh, a fixture of this Barcelona side. He has been sort of potentially touted as the replacement for Sergio Busquets. I'm not sure if that's necessarily his, his best uh, position. We're seeing him playing alongside him now. But if you say if he's going to be a Barcelona player for life, I think their plan now is to keep him for the foreseeable future. But, but then if another tasty-looking deal comes along, they'd be up for selling him. Basically, at Barcelona, pretty much anyone is for sale. Anyone is for sale because they need to bring in, uh, they need to bring in money. So Frank de Jong was one of the crown jewels, a really talented uh, midfield international player. A lot of people wanted him. Manchester United were ready to put up the cash. They were ready to sell him and he didn't want to go. That's the curious situation. But if, if it was to happen again, who knows what might happen in the future, although he's pretty happy in Barcelona. And if it were to happen with another player as well, like I said, basically anyone is up for sale for Barcelona for the right price. Um, so it depends on, on on the player whether or not they want to go. Now, uh, the five-point gap at the top of La Liga, Real Madrid are going to be in hot pursuit, you imagine. But what do you perceive as a potential Barcelona weakness? If they are going to start dropping points, what's the reason or sort of the uh, the indicators you see that might lead to them getting bad results? Is it as simple as the head-to-heads against the other strong teams? Or are there potential banana skins from mid-table or even relegation battlers that could catch them out? Oh, yeah, there are. I mean, La Liga is, uh, as I'm sure everybody listening will know or is becoming aware of, it's, it is a, actually a very competitive league and people think that Barcelona and, and Real Madrid are miles ahead of every other team. And it's just not like that anymore. A few years ago, Barcelona and Real Madrid did tend to get really big wins against some of the lower league teams at home particularly but over the last few years it has got a lot more a lot more balanced a lot more even and we're seeing a lot a lot more tight games in terms of Barcelona it seems funny to say this uh, about the side who have the best defensive record of any team in any major European league they've conceded six goals in 18 matches Uh, Ter Stegen has been playing extremely well but that's perhaps why Ter Stegen has been playing extremely well. He's made a number of match-winning saves. Almost every game he makes at least two or three exceptional exceptional saves. And I guess he can't keep doing that. If you look at Barcelona's expected goals allowed, it's nearly 15 goals that they should have conceded given the situation that they were up. So Ter Stegen's playing a really, really vital, vital role. Um, so I guess that's a potential weakness. Again, it feels silly saying this about a team with such a good defensive record in La Liga, but I think they've been outperforming um, thanks to thanks to Ter Stegen. And if you look at the Champions League, they conceded a lot of goals in the Champions League um, when they were perhaps playing against a slightly higher level of opponents. So maybe maybe that is one aspect where Xavi will have to work on. They brought in Jules Koundé from, from Sevilla, big money summer signing. He's improved the defence. Ronald Araujo is one of the best defenders in in Europe, if he stays fit, um, he will help Barcelona. But it just feels like, uh, at the moment, they're giving up too many opportunities to their opponents. The good news for them is that their goalkeeper has been absolutely amazing. I just wonder whether or not he can keep up that level for the entire season. Well, let's move on to the Real Madrid side of the equation in the title race. And I wanted to ask you first, Phil, about the generational change in midfield. Luka Modric at 37, coming off another great World Cup, and Real Madrid have signed a number of young players to potentially be his successor. But just how difficult a process is this for Real Madrid, adjusting to the idea that Modric won't always be there and that perhaps they are still so incredibly reliant on him to run the team? It's going to be difficult when Luka Modric finally leaves because he's one of the best midfielders 
he's one of the best footballers of all time. I mean, I'm an enormous fan of Luka Modric and what he's done and his extraordinary longevity. The last few weeks have given us a glimpse into the potential future, and it's the first time that Carlo Ancelotti has used the word transition. Uh, which hasn't been mentioned previously, but now it seemingly it's on the cards. And uh, last couple of weeks, we've seen Dani Tavayos come into the side and, and, and play ahead of uh, Luka Modric, do really well and give people an idea of, OK, maybe Luka Modric and Tony Cross, who's, who's 33, uh, Luka Modric is 37, maybe there is life after these two uh, footballing monsters uh, depart. It is going to be difficult. Uh, there isn't going to be another Luka Modric, but... They do have youngsters coming through. They have signed young players as well. They spent a lot of money on Eduardo Camavinga and Aurelien Chamini uh, to come into that midfield. They've got Fede Valverde coming through. Dani Ceballos has been there a few years, went to Arsenal, didn't quite work out. He's come back, he's bided his time, and he's back in the team. So, um, yeah, the midfield future could potentially look bright for Real Madrid, despite it being pretty traumatic when Luka Modric finally retires. You mentioned Fede Valverde. Um, he was on fire uh, prior to the World Cup break, but it seems like that didn't do him any good because he now hasn't scored um, since October, Phil. Can he recapture that form or um, is, the drop off, is the drop off from him uh, resulting in Real Madrid not being able to keep pace right now? Yeah, I think, you know, um, there was a tweet from Tony Cross again after one game. Was it the Classico? I think it might have been the Classico when Fede Valverde was uh, so impressive. And Tony Cross wrote, uh, Fede Valverde, top three in the world right now. Uh, he didn't specify whether he meant top three midfielders or just top three players. He was that good before the World Cup. There has been a really noticeable drop-off uh, from Fede Valverde. At the weekend, he was better against Real Sociedad. We saw him perform not quite at the level pre-World Cup, but he was getting there. And they, uh, and they do need him for his energy, for his physicality, for his goals as well. He was, he was regularly scoring goals and chipping in with important strikes. So in terms of what happened, um, I think there might have been one or two things off the pitch uh, that have affected his, uh, his performance. Footballers are, are human beings and when something happens uh, outside your work uh, environment, it can affect you at work and footballers are no different to that. So I think there's been one or two things off the pitch. And also, Uruguay is such a football-mad country. The level of expectation, pressure, desire to do well at the World Cup and then followed with their really quite disappointing showing, I think would have affected him emotionally as well. So slowly but surely, we hope, uh, we hope he gets back because he's one of La Liga's uh, standout players when he's, when he's at his best, which he was pre-World Cup. Real Madrid will have, of course, the Champions League to defend uh, in addition to chasing Barcelona in La Liga. What are the perceptions in Spain of Liverpool's struggles? Is the belief that Real Madrid are going to steamroll Liverpool or is the respect from having played them in a couple of European Champions League finals in the last five years mean that uh, this tie perhaps will belie Liverpool's league position? Um, When I say what I'm about to say, Liverpool fans and Manchester United fans tend to get sort of really quite proud of themselves Ooh, and puff be careful. Up their chest because <laughs> he, no no here in, here in Spain Liverpool and Manchester United are held in real major awe they are respected as great footballing institutions not Chelsea not Manchester City not really Arsenal but these teams are thought of as being sort of footballing royalty on a par with with Real Madrid probably um, the way we think about Barcelona and Real Madrid 
Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. I mean, particularly Liverpool because of what they've done in the in the in the, in the European Cup, which gives them that that that, that aura and that mystique that that Real Madrid certainly uh, have. <laughs> about themselves so yeah no the maximum respect for Liverpool despite their disappointing season I think whenever um, Real Madrid or Barcelona come up against Premier League teams the the question of physicality is, is often um, is often raised and, and Real Madrid were were steamrolled a little bit by Chelsea in the semi-finals a couple of seasons ago and that really sort of raised people's um, eyebrows and, and I think it led to a bit of a shift in, in Real Madrid's approach as well, bringing in players like Chamini, like Camaringa, like Fede Valverde to, um, to try and compete on that, on that level. So yeah, even though Liverpool aren't doing particularly well, I don't think there's any kind of arrogance from Real Madrid. There's, there's maximum respect, but there's confidence. There's always confidence from Real Madrid, particularly in the, in the European Cup because they view it as their, uh, as their competition. One other player I wanted to ask you about isn't in La Liga and won't be until July 2024, Endrick. Uh, how much excitement <laughs> is there for his arrival in the future, touted as the next great wonder kid? It reminds me a lot of Barcelona securing Neymar when he was at Santos. And again, it seemed as though the deal went through years before they were able to actually bring him to Spain. Um, it, how much is, does this reinforce the perception of Real Madrid as world football's top dog, that the best next player in world football is theirs and they can't even put him in the squad for another 18 months? Yeah, I mean, I think Real Madrid fans are, are hoping that he's going to turn out more like Vinicius and Rodrigo and not like Reynier. Do you remember Reynier? Do you know Reynier? You might not know who Reynier is because they spent 35 million euros on him when he was a teenager and he's on loan at Girona now and not even getting into their team. So this doesn't always work out, but it has worked out, uh, this uh, strategy of signing the best young Brazilian uh, teenagers for a lot of money because we're talking about huge amounts of money for teenagers who are unproven in Europe. But like I said, it worked with Vinicius. It worked spectacularly with Rodrigo as well. Uh, so if, if Endrick can come and have anywhere close to the kind of impact those two players have had on the first team, uh, then it's going to be another spectacular signing. And, and Real Madrid are very focused on, on, uh, on the Brazilian market. They've got... Um, their sort of chief scout is a guy called Juni Calafat, who is very much focused on on, on this kind of market to the to the um, to the detriment of uh, of perhaps other markets. Because I was told that Real Madrid had uh, had uh, old uh, Mudrik brought to their attention a good few years ago, and they decided no, we're not we're, we're not interested in him. They were more focused on on the Brazilian market, and, and you know. Few years later, Madrid goes for 100 million euros or 100 million pounds. Uh, but yeah, the Brazilian market is where they're uh, where they do their their best work. And if, like I said, if Hendrik is anywhere good as uh, Rodrigo or Vinicius, then it's going to be a hell of a signing. But we just don't know. He's 16. He's 16. He's a child. He he uh, he might not be able to cope with the immense pressure. Vinicius broke down in tears at the Bernabeu after scoring a goal against Osasuna a couple of seasons ago. That was the level of, of pressure he was under. And this is someone who played for uh, Flamengo, which is the biggest club in a football-mad country like, like Brazil. He'd, he'd felt pressure before, but it's not like coming to Real Madrid. It's, an, it's a new level, and these are really young kids. So, yeah, uh, there is excitement for Endrick, but there's also a bit of caution because we, we just don't know he is a bit of a, an unknown entity, given that he is a, he is a child.
Let's talk about the top four race, and I want to start with Atleti and Diego Simeone, because at times this season, it seems as though the 11-year relationship has been coming perhaps to an organic end. Now Atleti are starting to look a bit more secure in the top four, albeit with a very good chasing pack that are holding them to account. What is your assessment of the current state of Atletico Madrid, Diego Simeone's future at the club? Where is that currently at? And is it going to be turbulent or are we are we finally going to see some stability? <laughs> um, yeah, turbulent and, and Diego Simeone. Well, sometimes those 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 two things go, go hand in hand. I remember after the 2016 Champions League final when they'd lost on penalties to Real Madrid again. He was asked about his future and he said, I'll have to think about it. And we're going back uh, seven years now. So the, 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 the idea of Diego Simeone potentially not continuing at, at Atletico Madrid has been there in the, in the ether for the last seven years. He's been able to come back from, from, from the edge, from the precipice. They won the, the, the league in, in uh, 2021. But it feels like now is the closest time in the last 11 years that it might be coming to an end. He certainly let a few things slip. The other day in a press conference, he said, well, as you all know, my, my, my continuity at Atletico Madrid depends on, on how we finish the season and getting into the top four. And I had messages from, from, from other journalists saying, did, did we know that? Did we, did we know that his continuity is, is dependent on, the top, on them getting into the top four? I don't think we knew it officially. So him, him saying that um, is, quite, um, is quite telling. Obviously, they're holding forth at the moment um, just ahead of, you know, Villarreal and Real Betis is, uh, of course, chasing really hard. But can I just dig down into a play they've actually let go of, and that is Jao Felix. Um, he had his yes. debut for Chelsea, uh, you know. Was that a big eye-opener for Atleti? And, and what do you think is going to happen? Because he's only on loan. Will he be back? Well, Jao Felix's uh, future is very much linked to the future of uh, Diego Simeone. So if Simeone is still there in the summer... Maybe he won't be that keen to be coming back if Simeone is gone and there's another manager who wants to perhaps use this exceptionally talented attacking player as he would like to be used, then uh, then maybe Xiao Felix will, will come back. Uh, with these two, it, it came down to a, a battle of wills. I think the club bought this player, uh, which Diego Simeone didn't necessarily want. Uh, they spent an unbelievable amount of money on him, so they wanted him to play. Diego Simeone didn't necessarily want him to play because he's not his kind of player. So there was a battle of wills there, and it's ended up in this situation with him going out on this on this temporary loan. And I think it is very much linked to what happens with Simeone. Like I said, if he goes, Jao Felix will almost certainly come back, go probably straight into the team. But if he stays, then his future is a lot more um, a lot more uncertain. And and just on that, I mean, I know he got sent off, but his performance for Chelsea was so enlightening as to what he can do. Uh, from under the shackles or, you know, rigours of Simeone. But the amount of money and sort of the, the sunk cost that Atleti has invested in him, is that perhaps dictating what they do with Joao Felix, that they didn't want to sell him with an obligation to buy, well, loan him with an obligation to buy, for instance? Is recouping the transfer fee front of mind here, or do you think some pragmatism will eventually enter their thinking? The transfer fee has been the biggest problem for for Jao Felix. I mean, you know, you spend 125 million euros on a, on a on a teenager who's had half a good season for Benfica. I mean, it was a ludicrously inflated transfer fee, which brought with it all sorts of problems and expectations. So, from from 
that, that that's been the problem for uh, for Jao Felix. Had he come on much less money, there would have been much less expectations, and and there wouldn't have been as much focus on him. And and who knows how things would have developed. There, obviously, he is their main asset. He is their most expensive player ever, and they have invested an unbelievable amount of money. So they are not about to let him go on the cheap. Uh, but for that to happen. He needs to play. He needs to do well, and someone needs to come in for him with uh, with, with a lot of money. So, if someone comes in with a big offer, uh, then uh, I'm, I'm sure they'd be open to, uh, to 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 hearing those offers. Now, one of the great strengths of Spanish football is the dominance of Spanish teams in European competitions, and Villarreal are the only team left standing in the Europa Conference League uh, at the moment. Uh, sorry, the only La Liga team left standing in the Europa Conference League. But they have just lost Ano Danjuma to Spurs and they are in a battle to try and finish fourth. So when you assess Villarreal and their role in the second half of the season, are they going to prioritise the Europa Conference League and try to win that trophy or is qualifying for the Champions League more important? And then how much of a blow is losing Danjuma as they try to achieve these goals on multiple fronts? I think qualifying for the Champions League is, is infinitely more important than, than, than winning the Conference League. But as they progress in the Conference League, the closer they get to a hypothetical final, the, the more serious they will take it. But fourth place is absolutely up for grabs in, in La Liga this season. It is wide open. A number of teams uh, feel that they can make the top four. And Villarreal are one of the strongest ones. So they will definitely be be um, prioritising La Liga and prioritising getting back into that top four and getting all that lovely Champions League money uh, as well. Um, in terms of Dan Juma, funny season. Very funny season for him because he got injured. And then there were some issues potentially in the dressing room off the field things that you know we're not necessarily privy to but I've heard whisperings that all he wasn't particularly happy but uh, the change of manager didn't help him as well uh, Unai Emery loved him uh, Kike Setien loved him a little bit less and was uh, <laughs> uh, willing to let him let him go out on loan um, I don't think it's a it's a massive blow for him because uh, Kike Setien has a, a style of playing and he's got his Two wingers, and Jeremy Pino and Samuel Chukwese, they're the players that, that he particularly wanted to play. And, and he won't be viewing the loss of Arna Danjuma as anything uh, too uh, destabilising. They had to get rid of some players because they had a, champ, a budget or for the squad or for a Champions League side, but they're competing in the Conference League. So they had to uh, balance the books a little bit. So um, getting rid of Danjuma, even if it is for a loan, will uh, uh, free up a bit of a bit of salary space for them. So I don't think it's a massive blow, even though last season he was really, really, really important on an incredible run they had in the in the Champions League. But they finished seventh last season and they finished seventh the season before that as well. So they really, really need to get back into the top four. Yes, they've had great European runs, winning the Europa League, getting to the Champions League semi-final. But this is the season for Villarreal to make the top four. Losing Emery was a massive, massive blow. And I'm not sure if they're going to be able to do it with uh, with Kike Setien. But it should be it should be fun to, to, to watch them try. Uh, what I'm curious to know with the Europa League, which you've touched on, is uh, will we see an all-Spanish final? Obviously, there's still Betis, Sevilla, Barcelona and Sociedad all still in the tournament. Do you think we might see an all-Spanish final? I'd, I'd, I'd love to see an all-Spanish final. I mean, you've mentioned the uh, you've mentioned the Europa League team there. Obviously, Sevilla, six times winners of this competition. It is their competition. They're breaking my heart this season, though. Can I tell you? Because I adopted them early on ah. after a, a wonderful season 
last year and they were so far ahead last year of where they are this season that they're breaking my heart. So I'm holding out for Europa League here with Sevilla because I think that's all we've got a chance of winning. So it's it's your fault, Amy, because they've had really good seasons up until you started <laughs> yes. supporting them. So I'll, I'll go and tell all the Sevillistas. It's Amy Duggan's fault. Uh, address your uh, your concerns to her. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really bizarre what's happened with Sevilla this season and uh, they were in a relegation battle a couple of weeks ago. They're too, they're too good to go down. It's a phrase that gets banded around, but it's it's genuinely true uh, with the, with this team. They, they won't go down, but they might not make European football otherwise. <laughs> so the Europa League is, is really quite huge for them. Um, and it's got an emotional pull for them uh, as well. They feel like it's their competition. So expect them to, if not prioritise it, but they'll go for it. They'll go for it. They've got uh, nothing to lose. And maybe we will see that Spanish final. If you're going to pick two teams to be in that final, who would you pick, Phil? Who would be the pick of the bunch? Probably, you know, Barcelona and Real Sociedad are the the, the two best Spanish teams left in the competition. I would love to see Real Sociedad make a, a European final. They're having such an extraordinary season in La Liga. They are competing with the big boys. They're winning matches and they are doing it with kids from their youth academy. 18 players who have played in the first team squad this season have come through the youth academy. It's more than any other team in any major European league. Uh, they've got an identity, they've got a belief in the manager, um, they're aggressive as well. And um, it's, it's a great story. So if they were to make the Europa League final along with, along with Barcelona, that would be terrific. You mentioned the phrase, too good to go down. Valencia have just parted ways with Gennaro Gattuso. Uh, whether or not that was an inevitability, they find themselves sitting just one point above the relegation zone. This is a team that 20 years ago played in consecutive Champions League finals. Now they find themselves here. Um, who's coming in as Valencia manager? What's your mail? And is there a actual chance that they could get dragged into a relegation battle here if they get that appointment wrong? They're one point above the relegation zone, uh, even though they're 14th at the moment. That's how tight it is at the bottom. And I think there is a chance they might get uh, dragged into the relegation battle simply because they're a really young squad. They're a squad that didn't expect to be uh, involved in a relegation battle. They weren't sort of mentally prepared for it. They've got quite a few players on loan as well. And loan players thinking, probably not going to be here anyway next season, so maybe they won't be as committed to the cause as perhaps other 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 players. The new manager is a guy called Voro. He's the caretaker manager. He has been in caretaker charge of Valencia. This is his eighth time. He's basically the uh, break glass in case of emergency manager and he comes in and stabilizes the ship and um, they tend to be all right when he, when he comes in. I think he's going to get it till the end of the season. I'm not sure they're going to be able to bring anyone in. Uh, it's it's a bit of a madhouse, Valencia. Uh, it's run in a certain way by by their owners. And this is not the first time that a manager has left because promises have not been kept to him or he hasn't under he hasn't you know things haven't gone how he uh, how he thought they were going to go because the mail was this was a mutual termination wasn't it it wasn't like the clubs let him go it wasn't like he has to leave that the mail is it's mutual but i'm sure there's much more to that but speaking of gattuso when he came in um this side was doing things at the beginning of the season that were making their fans smile they were a lot more uh, had a lot more go forward about them. They're a little bit more creative than what we're used to, um, but something just hasn't happened there. Is that a case of too much interference from the ownership and, and not letting the manager do his thing, or is there more to it? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's 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 an interesting one. I mean, 
Valencia were not expecting Gattuso to, uh, to to walk out. I can tell you that this was. I don't think this was particularly mutual. I think it was the manager um, not being met uh, by uh, by the by the board on, on certain things. But but anyway, uh, listen, Valencia. I said they're a, they're a young side and they're a little bit naive. Because if you look at um, the, the table, if matches lasted 45 minutes, they'd be seventh and be challenging for Europe and they'd have eight or nine points more. But they've let a lot of goals in uh, in the second half. And I would put that down to a bit of naivete. They don't have the know-how to see, to see out matches conceding late on. So there's something there. And obviously that is the fault, I guess, of the players and the managers. That's not necessarily the fault of the, uh, of the owners. So there were perhaps structural things there. But you're right. At the start of the season, compared to last season under... Jose Bordalas, whose style was extremely defensive. We do not want the ball. We will try and play on the counter-attack. Um, this was a, a breath of fresh air. So, yeah, it's gone pretty sour pretty quickly. And the club, who are an absolute giant. I mean, I live and work in Spain and I can't get across. You know, what a big club this is. Valencia is the third biggest city. They've got a massive fan base, really proud history. And they are in the doldrums. And it's difficult to see them coming out of it anytime soon given the limitations that any new manager that comes in will inevitably face. We'll find out if they are in that relegation battle where uh, I'm really glad to hear you say that Sevilla is far too good to stay down there and will have no problems. But one team that will struggle is Elche. Winless after 19 games, 14 points out of it. Um, Where does it put them amongst the worst performers in La Liga? So Elche currently have six points after 19 games, which is really terrible um they're on course for the lowest ever points tally because the lowest ever points tally was sporting gijon in the 1997-98 season with 13 so we're if we're at the midway point and they've got six i'm not very good at maths but they're on course for 12 points so this is potentially the worst ever season in la liga and it's uh, it's difficult to explain how this has happened because the squad isn't actually that bad they've got some pretty good attacking players but i think the longer it's gone on the just cloud of negativity has surrounded the players you doubt yourself i mean obviously amy you know you know as a you know former professional when you if you're in a really difficult situation you begin to doubt yourself the simple passes don't come off you doubt your teammates you doubt everything this creeps in and it affects, uh, affects your, uh, your performances. So, um, yeah, Elche are going down. I think we can say that. They're 14 points from safety. It would need a Champions League run of form for them to, to escape, which is not going to happen. The question is, is it going to be the worst ever season in the history of La Liga? So, you know, that's something interesting to watch as well. You know, are Elche going to manage to get to 13 points or are they going to be officially the worst team ever? Now, Phil, I know that we could have such a wide-ranging chat with you because we watch La Liga TV here in Adoptus Sport. You know, often it'll be a Monday morning. I'll be cutting a mini-match and some highlights packages <laughs> and we'll have you and the other pundits on in the background. So I knew that we could, we could take this, this conversation in any direction we wanted. But to finish, um, what's the sleeper storyline that we haven't asked you about? What's, uh, what's the La Liga uh, team or player or issue to watch in the second half of the season that maybe we haven't touched on so far that you think could be either an explosion or a slow burn through the second half of the campaign? The team of the season for me at the moment so far, the story of the season is a, is a team called Osasuna who you might not have heard of, uh, dear Australians, because they are not a massive team. Oh, we but... have because it was John Aloisi's club when he played in La Liga. Oh, of course so you have. We, we, all, we all know Osasuna thanks to John Aloisi. 
So you all know Osasuna, so uh, you should all get on the uh, Osasuna bandwagon this season because they're playing extremely well and they're absolutely flying in the league. They're, they're eight, they're a couple of points off European football. They've got an extraordinary uh, stadium. The home fans are unbelievably passionate, noisy, vocal, intimidating. It's a great place to watch football. They've got a lot of homegrown players as well. Small budget, but the manager is doing wonders with them he's the, the longest serving manager in La Liga after Diego Simeone they had a really poor run last season they didn't sack him they backed him to the hill and they're, um, they're it's paying dividends so watch out for Osasuna like I said um, forgive me for uh, mis, uh, uh, underestimating your uh, capacity to know uh, random teams because John Aloisi has spread the gospel of Osasuna all the way to uh, your, your part of the world but they are a team to watch out for because they are uh, they're an exciting team and um, they, uh, they 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 play good football and matches in their stadium against the big teams when Barcelona come when Real Madrid come uh, it is one of the most difficult places to go if you're a Premier League aficionado let me give you a comparison it is the Spanish version of Stoke away on a cold Tuesday night that is Osasuna so keep your eyes on them because they're doing wonderfully. Phil Kittromelidis, we can keep watching you on La Liga TV, on Optus Sport. Thank you for such a, a thorough deep dive into so many different topics around La Liga. It doesn't matter which end of the table or whether it's the European competitions. Uh, I know you're a, a font of knowledge from having watched your work, and I, I knew we could do this to you and grill you on all of it today. So thank you so much for joining us on the Gegen Pod. Pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. So let's wrap up the Gegen Pod with some rapid fire, and we do have former Matilda Amy Duggan to get us to the finish line. Amy, the FA Cup, what a match between Sheffield United and Wrexham. Of course, Wrexham are famous now because of the documentary with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney taking over as the club's owners, and they were 3-2 up before a last gasp equaliser means that it goes to a cup replay, and Spurs could be waiting in the next round. Do you think Wrexham... I know it's a Hollywood story quite literally, but do you think they can keep it going, beat Sheffield United in the replay, and then set up a, another dream tie against Tottenham? Oh, I hope they can. How good is this fairy tale? I think we we look at Wrexham and they you know they weren't a big team and Ryan Reynolds has come in and um, since he's got there, the investment in the squad has been heaps, but also the media has been focused on them and for them to play a team that's, you know, what, 70 above them, um, as in Sheffield United and be winning it was like oh my gosh the upset of the season and then to have your heart broken in the 96th minute unbelievable I think in the replay even if they get the job done Spurs will be waiting and they uh they won't have the class to beat Spurs I don't think but um can you imagine and what a good guy Ryan Reynolds is too by the way like last week forking out um you know 600 pounds to pay for a junior futsal team's kit that are now going to carry their symbol I just think he's uh he's creating what I call the wave effect he's dropped a big pebble in the ocean and the waves just keep going and they're all good Elsewhere in the FA Cup, Liverpool eliminated by Brighton. So do they put all their eggs in the Champions League basket, Amy? Or do you expect Liverpool to still fight from mid-table back into a Europa League place, even if it seems as though the top four might be a bit too far away? I think they're always going to fight. They're a big club and won't it be weird not to see them one in the top four, but if they're, you know, completely eliminated from Europe this season. Um, Being beaten by Brighton, I don't think was a surprise given their... Uh, very up and down, I'm just going to say, diabolical season that they've had so far. I think 
um, their coach at the moment is, you know, shaking his head and saying how disappointed he is. But he's also, poor old Klopp, he's, he's also just, he looks like he's lost for answers. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is either. Um, don't forget Arsenal were also eliminated. So that maybe the focus is just on the league. But for Liverpool, they need to put their, their eggs in the Champions League basket, but they also need to fight for Europa League. And um, I just don't know that they've got it in them at the moment. Like, sure, they've got the player stocks and they've got the quality there. They're just not being able to put it together on the park. Well, you mentioned Arsenal's elimination. They've signed Jorginho from Chelsea on transfer deadline day. Do you think, I mean, I know you dismissed the idea of it when I asked last week, but do you think this 1-0 loss to Manchester City means there could be any lingering psychological effects in the league title race where, of course, they still have to play Manchester City twice? Yeah, it's keeping it interesting, isn't it? And and what mouthwatering clashes they all set up to be, not just in the the cup, but also the two upcoming matches in the league. I I still don't think it's going to have... It probably will have a psychological effect on City because they'll believe they can get the job done. Um, But for Arteta and Arsenal, I don't think that's going to be the case. He has been quite open as a coach in saying um, there's more to this squad there's more to this team he hasn't been able to get the best out of them and they're leading the league so I'm looking forward to seeing what that does if anything I think the loss will be used as motivation mentally to to make sure that they're switched on and make sure that they step up and make sure that they get the win now, the, the Jorginho signing is one deadline day move that's come in. We've seen Joao Cancelo leave Manchester City to go to Bayern Munich. But, Amy, you're a Manchester United fan. Uh, we've seen Marcel Savitzer at Euro 2020 playing for Austria. He was an absolute star at RB Leipzig, but it hasn't worked out for him at Bayern Munich. So he's been loaned to Manchester United. It seems as though Eric Ten Hag and his transfer market uh, acumen has been pretty good. So how excited are you for the Austrian dead ball specialist? Well, it just adds another string to the bow, doesn't it? And a little bit more depth across the squad. And I think, as you said, Ten Hag's buying. Um, and I think we talked through Tracker Man or whatever they're calling their new technology and, and how they're looking at players and also um, the psychological side of how they're picking players. So he obviously meets the, the threshold and the boundaries, but also comes with that extra string in his bow that uh, when there's a set piece, he can step up and hopefully make it count. Let's move on to a bit of women's football because transfer deadline day nearly had a bit of drama there as well. Arsenal were reported by The Athletic as lining up a world record bid for Alessia Russo. Now, to break the world record, it would only have to have been about £460,000 to beat the mark that Kira Walsh moved to Barcelona with. And I know that on the Gegen pod, we had discussed when will we see our first million pound or million euro women's football transfer. So maybe that day is getting closer, but it may not be for Russo because if she's not moving now, her contract expires at the end of the season, which would uh, obviously give her pick of the board. And I'm sure there'd be no shortage of clubs willing to pay her a very nice wage to attract the uh, breakout star of Euro 2024 or Euro 2022 for England. uh, So much to unpack there, Tate, isn't there? Like um, breaking or almost breaking the record. I've heard that they turned down the offer that came to them from Arsenal. So I'm kind of a bit baffled and need to read a little bit more on why that would be. Um, Manchester United might just be trying to hold on to her for the long haul. But I think, you know, if she's smart, obviously she's going to wait until the end of the season as well. And um, then, of course, there'll be 
all the hype around the Women's World Cup and they've come off this Euros and, and she's hot property at the moment. So yes, for Alessia, it's probably going to work out well. I hope Manchester United can hold on to her, but um, you know I don't see it working out like that. I think gone are the days of loyalty from players to the badge or to a team. And it, it's a business now and it's about making the most of your career. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing in one sense, but it's also, uh, it's bittersweet in in another um but yeah like if i was i want you to go in russo's shoes here if you were running down your contract but you knew there was a world cup so she can't risk an injury here this is effectively gambling on her own form i'm going to finish the wsl season strong i'm going to have a good world cup with england and then i'm going to be able to name my price anywhere in the world but you come from an era where job security and even getting paid to play was a totally foreign concept. So as, a, as an ex-international from a different generation, how does it make you feel to see Russo taking this sort of a move? Uh, you know, with great risk, there comes great reward. And I think that's probably the way that she's looking at it. Um, it's, it's not like she's at the end of her career. She's at the beginning of her career. And I do understand there's the risk of injury there. But um, I think the likelihood of um, that happening is probably not something that she's focused on. And I don't think any player thinks like that. Um, it's it's hard to imagine um, players now having to juggle and balance the, the business of sport with being a great athlete. And I think that's why we have managers, right? So um, I, I just let people do their own business. But you're right, I think she's going to be able to set her own price. And certainly if she scores another goal the way that she did at the Euros, and she'll probably pick up a Puskas as well. So, you know, the accolades just keep coming. And I think the sky's the limit. Wouldn't it be cool to see her break the million dollar um, Mark, maybe we'll go close. It, it, I, um, was I asleep? Uh, she's at Manchester United. How do United not have the money to meet her demands, Amy? What What's missing, given that this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest commercial club in the world that should have the money to say, hey, Alessio Russo is great for marketing, if not a great footballer on the pitch. Why wouldn't they just break the bank to give her a new contract? Maybe they will. Maybe they will. And they just, um, you know, they just haven't done it now maybe there's more to this story maybe she's expressed to them that she'd like to try new things as well but right now she's wearing the red jersey and that's all I'm worried about and this team that team's flying I don't think at the beginning of the season especially in the WSL we thought it was going to be a two-horse race again between Arsenal and Chelsea and this Manchester United side are doing um are doing everything at the moment right to be right up the top well, just for our listeners' courtesy, we are recording this on Wednesday morning as the transfer deadline comes to a close. So any additional deals, make sure you jump onto Optus Sport. We've got our full transfer tracker there. And, of course, the written team and digital teams are getting you across all the transfer news as well as anyone arriving in the Premier League with our Premier League productions co- content as well. But, Amy, just last topic of the gig and pod today, Harry Souter, deal done to Leicester City. We've known and touted that a Premier League move has been coming for such a long time and you get first crack at telling us uh, what great news this is for Harry. Well, I think it's not just great news for Harry. It is great news for Harry. It's actually wonderful to have an Aussie in the Premier League. Um, I'm sure, you know, the following of Leicester is going to be going through the roof from now till the end of the season. It's absolutely awesome. Um, and great for him too. And I think it's a good fit. You know, there, were, there was a lot of teams bandied around about uh, who wanted him and where he was going to go. And I think we've discussed on previous pods why this is such a great move for him. Um, 
and I think it'll help his game grow as well and I just hope that he can come back he played really well during the the men's world cup but was obviously returning from that knee injury and I hope he can refine the form that he is so well known for he's such an imposing character on the field and as well as stature um, but does have some great distribution skills as well and I I look forward to seeing more of that but I also think um on the other side of that, it's great for our game. It's great for the Aussie game to see Aussies, you know, making it to the top and being on the, not just the world stage, but the premier footballing stage in the world and and mixing it with the best every single week. And I just, I think it's the most fantastic news. Amy Duggan, it's been a very diverse gig and pod with the topics that we've ranged across today. So thank you for joining us for the majority of it. And no doubt we'll be speaking to you again on this platform soon. Absolutely. And can I just mention with the World Cup Stadium move, Australia taking on Ireland in that opening game of the Women's World Cup will now be played at Stadium Australia, which opens up a whole lot more seats for Aussie fans to get their bums in and they go on sale on February 24. So uh, put that date in your diary, jump online and do not miss out because this will be a record breaker. Yes, a big thanks to Amy Duggan and also earlier in the show, Phil Kittramalides from La Liga TV and right off the top, of course, Mark Schwarzer as well. The Premier League returns with a bang on Saturday when Chelsea host Fulham from 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Everton play league leaders Arsenal from 11.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday night and you can see both Manchester United against Crystal Palace and Liverpool away to Wolves in goal rush from 2am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Sunday. The big one from 3.30am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Monday morning is Tottenham against Manchester City. La Liga continues with Real Betis hosting Barcelona from 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Thursday. Then Real Madrid plays Valencia at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Friday. And you get a double dose of the big boys because Real Madrid are back at midnight Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Monday with their trip to Mallorca while Barcelona play at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Monday against Sevilla. And the WSL is set to resume on Saturday night at 10.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time with Leicester City taking on Manchester City. Don't miss Sam Kerr's Chelsea playing Tottenham on Sunday night at 11.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So that's it for the Gagan Pod this week. Make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for joining us once again on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was the Gagan Pod. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 